Ready? One, two, three. Hi, we're the students of Colorado State University Music Business. You're listening to your morning coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Eshart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, music attorney Don Passman on contracts, AI, and what makes superstars different. And from Media, streaming is missing cultural moments, and superstars know it. And also from Billboard, from points to publishing, here's how and how much producers get paid now. Mm-hmm. Well, Jay, you and I love stuff like this. We love the backstory. We love getting the details, how the sausage is made. So yeah. maybe the subtitle of this episode is how the sausage is paid. I don't know. On that, we will start <laughs> the show. We're glad you're here. This is episode 166, and we're going to start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Your morning coffee, the weekly music news. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, it is so good to see you on a day that your Vikings won, at least. It was a good, good day for, for football for you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, how about that intro um, from our friends over at Colorado State University, the music business program over there? Uh, uh, Eric Griffin, Chuck Morris, those guys, they have a great program. Um, I got to participate a while back in uh, a guest lecture over there, and uh, which leads us sort of beautifully into a couple of pieces um, that were in your morning coffee this week. Um, one was called Billboard's 2023 Top Music Business Schools, which was mm-hmm. pretty great. A lot of yeah. our friends ended up in there. Um, and I'm actually speaking at a couple of those schools this week. Um, one is at uh, LA College of Music with uh, Jeff Mayfield. Really yeah. looking forward to that. The other is uh, UC Denver uh, with Storm Glore. They've got a great program out there. And uh, both of them were listed in this uh, article from uh, Billboard. Well, there are so many more opportunities to learn about the industry than there were when we were there. You know, just the, when you look at the number of books, the number of programs at different universities, just YouTube videos and all kinds of stuff. It's really, uh, if, if there is a, a huge positive to all of the different forms of media and all of the awareness, it's that 
you know, there's, there are great ways to learn at a time, you know, it, it used to be sort of secret knowledge. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember the first book I ever read was on, Kenny Rogers had written a book on the music industry, like back in the seventies. And, uh, oh, but wow. that was it. That was it. And no, there wasn't, there wasn't much. Yeah. And even so, for the last, uh, I don't know, 20 years or so, there were certain books and we'll talk about one of them in a minute, you know, by Donald Passman that are sort of on everybody's desk. And last week we talked about a few of those that uh, are really important, but those are books. There are these music industry programs now at the college level. Uh, they're legit. There's some yeah. really great programs. So check out that article in billboard top music business schools. And uh, there was a companion piece to it. Uh, it's called want to be a producer. Check out these audio engineering programs. So if you want to get a, an education, uh, on some areas of the music business you uh, may want to get into. Uh, nowadays at the college level, there's quite a few. Well, and I also think what's interesting is is that there used to be stuff, but only in kind of the major media markets. So you had maybe programs in LA, maybe something in New York. Uh, but now they're really spread out, you know, and it's yeah. it's wonderful for, for folks that want to enter that world to not necessarily have to go to the land of expensive rents and things like that. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Also, uh, this week, Grammy voting is open and there is a complete guide to Grammy voting in your morning coffee this last week. Check that out. So um, it, the first round of voting uh, for the 2024 Grammys, it opened last uh, Wednesday, October 11th, and closes this Friday, October 20th. So if you are a voting member of the Academy or if you just want to learn how the sausage is made over at uh, how Grammys are awarded, check it out. Yeah. And I will put another shout out for the Grammy Museum. I was there uh, Monday night for a show from Judith Owen, who's a wonderful singer songwriter. And you and I have been there to a couple of events there. Yeah. If you haven't been to the Grammy Museum, take a trip downtown here in, uh, in L.A. and Southern California. Certainly worth it. And uh yeah. It's Grammy season. I love, Grammy I love season. that place. It's just a fun place to visit. It's like a little mini museum. They've got that auditorium that fits just the right amount of people to make mm -hmm. these things so intimate. And uh, before we jump into this week's stories, um, just a reminder, there's some really great music business conferences coming up um, that we're going to be attending. And I uh, hope we'll see some of our uh, listeners and readers there too. Uh, the first one is Music Tectonics. Uh, we had such a great time last year. Um, it's in Santa Monica again this year, and it's October 24th through the 26th. Yep, we'll be there. And uh, the Jump Global Summit is in uh, in Los Angeles, November 12th through the 14th. There is a $200 discount for your morning coffee listeners. The promo code is, uh, we'll put it in the show notes so you have it. Yeah, it's JG Community 23 um, and then the last one we talk about, one of our sponsors and one of our favorite conferences is the Music Business Association Conference. And that's May 13th through the 16th in Nashville. And we hope to see you there. A lot of fun shall be had. And Jay, we'd, uh, when we do the show every week, we also get a chance to give a shout out to our sponsors because we have some good ones. Yeah. Uh, actual products and services that we use, as a matter yes, of fact. Exactly. The Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform. Makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website, everything is built right in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, 
tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, very important, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, and that'll give you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes, sir. Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform, and it connects over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. And we are also sponsored by the Music Business Association. The Music Business Association hosts an annual slate of in-person and virtual events so industry professionals across the globe can come together to discuss hot-button issues and support the growth of the entire music business community. As we mentioned, don't forget, join us at the Music Biz 2024 conference May 13 through 16 at the JW Marriott in Nashville. Because Jay is buying the drinks. Big thanks to Banzugo, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. Boy, we certainly appreciate we your sure support. We could not do it without you. And of course, every week I get to hang out with my good friend Jay Gilbert. He is a music, a digital music shaman, if I may say so. He is uh, one of my best friends from uh, for a long time. He's a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. And I'm so fortunate to get to do this show every week and even the kind of pre-show where we get on and talk about the favorite meals and concerts and things that we've uh, experienced over the last week. And I get to do that every week with my buddy, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. Indeed. A pre-show. I like that. That's We do a pre-show and a show every week, yeah. don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we just only record one of them. I just made that up. You just made that up. I, and I, I think I that's I pretty that. cool. All I don't right. know. All right. Well, what do you say we jump into the stories, Jay? Number Our story number one is from Billboard. Music attorney Don Passman on contracts, AI, and what makes superstars different. And it's worth noting, as you and I have said many a time, that the uh, Don Passman's series of books, actually, I think he's on. Is this? Uh, this this is, is the 11th, 11th edition. The 11th edition. The one that edition. comes out October 24th. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And when the first one came out, I remember, you know, reading about it and getting it and opening it up and just going, this is like the secrets of the universe. <laughs> it's, yeah. And, and you, know, you and I talked before the show, too, that, you know, I mean, we, we, we did a lot of different things in the music industry. But unless you are a music business attorney, perhaps, and working on contracts and things like that, there are so many nuances on the business side that you just can't possibly know. And that book was just like handing over all of the mysteries of the world and in all in one publication, it was, that's lovely. right. And I don't know anybody that I worked with any executive, certainly in the music industry that didn't have the book. 
And if you don't know by now, the book is all you need to know about the music business. This is the 11th edition that's coming out. Um, they sent me an advanced copy, which I highlighted the heck out of and read through. And what I love about it is, yeah, it's all of those things that you need to know. And it's a good reference book in case there are some areas that uh, you want to look up. It's just such a great reference. But there's also a little bit of humor in there with it. Yes. And yeah. it continues to evolve. And I remember when the 10th edition came out, you and I were talking on the podcast how that one was really different than its predecessors. Um, it just had things like Web3 and artificial intelligence and streaming and a lot of things that weren't really covered as deeply in those previous uh, versions. Well, this edition is fantastic. Um, again, I've read it cover to cover. comes out October 24th. I highly recommend it. It's one of those must-have books that if you plan on being in the music industry, you need to have this nearby as reference. Well, and he, as uh, as it, it's mentioned, you know, he's he's been in the business for almost five decades, and you know, when you have someone who's got that body of knowledge and who has been in the negotiations, who has been behind those closed doors, uh, and it was, I you know, I remember, I think, in, in fact, in, on one of the first editions, I think it had a quote from Mo Austin, where he's oh, wow. you know, essentially saying. I'm not really sure what I think about this book because it really <laughs> is is kind of you know letting the cat out of the bag in terms of a lot of a lot of industry a lot of the a lot of information that we don't really know, want everybody to know. And that's right. And there were other music industry attorneys that I had read that were very upset with Donald Passman when he put this book out because that's how they made their living was mm -hmm. with the information that was contained in that book. And I will say that there is an article about this in your morning coffee. The one that we're covering is not in your morning coffee because it came out just after I hit the send uh, button. So this piece that we're going to dig into right here, it's probably the best one that I've seen so far about um, this new book coming out because it's an interview with Donald. Uh, by Glenn Peoples, our yeah. friend and uh, colleague over at Billboard magazine. And as we've said many, many times, nobody does it better than Glenn Peoples. No, 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 no. And it starts with, when, even with one of the most interesting things I thought about this was Glenn's question. He said in the new version of All You Need to Know About the Music Business, you write that, uh, with, uh, with, you write that the music business has become far more democratic since the last edition of your book. And he says, what do you mean by that? And uh, Passman goes on to say, now it's about how you connect with your fans. I have a section uh, that I've expanded this time about how to go about doing that. Whether you want to do it yourself completely or whether you want to go to a label, you've got to start a buzz on your own and you've got to make things happen. The companies get the same data. They're all chasing the same artists and you're getting bidding wars and artists are able to get deals that in history they could never have gotten for their first record deal. That so is so really interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah, he goes on to say that the downside is that you get people who have a billion streams but have never played in front of a live audience. And you and I have talked about that. He says, I'm exaggerating, but they don't have the years on the road of developing their chops and they don't have a live show. So maybe they've only got a few songs. Um, if you look at the statistics from Billboard, there are less new artists in the top 100 over the last few years. It's been declining. And there's a concern that we're in, uh, we're, we're in the hip hop building business rather than the career building business. And no one's quite sure why or what to do about it other than feed the short attention spans 
and the virality of some of these things, but it's challenging in the sense, you know, you want to build a long-term career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Glenn goes on to say the front of the new edition of your book says artists have more power than ever in the history of the business. Where's that power coming from? And he says, from what we've discussed about how the labels are chasing people who already have a buzz, what happens is that two or three labels start to chase the same artist. And if the artist is trending upward during the fox hunt, the numbers get bigger and bigger and the labels are bidding against each other. And he says, and so the artists now have a lot of power to demand things that they've never gotten before in history, like a share of the profits, like ownership of their masters that revert after a period of time. It used to be that you had to have, you had to be massive to get these things, but not anymore. So Glenn asks, what about artists who are already established? Do they have more power? Is there a ceiling to how powerful a Taylor Swift or somebody can be in, in her negotiations? And Donald says, well, there's a ceiling, but the ceiling in any negotiation is just simply the pain tolerance of the other side. My personal philosophy is that you, there's such a thing as making too good a deal. If you leave the other side so battered that they have no incentive to do anything, in particular, if the artist, if, if something goes wrong, because they just can't make enough of a return on it. I think there's such a thing as going over the line. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you see that in, in, I think that's a, that's a, a, a very humane way to approach a contract negotiation, which is you yeah. just can't pummel the other side to where they're just, they're angry and, 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 yeah. and that may come back on you. So I think that's a, a really interesting point and kind of a good point for, for life in general, besides contract yeah. negotiations with music companies. Uh, Glenn also goes on to say, Hey, the 360 degree multi-rights contract was dominant for a time. Artists pushed back. They didn't want to share other revenue streams other than recorded music. And is that still a starting point for contracts, that 360-degree kind of concept? Mm -hmm. And then you carve out exceptions. And he says, yes and yes. Most of all, labels will ask for something. If there's any kind of bidding war, it goes away pretty quickly. A few labels are stubborn and think they're entitled to it no matter what. But most labels, if there's any kind of bidding it'll go away. Or at worst, it gets reduced radically to relatively small amounts. So, mm. you know, again, fascinating stuff that unless you're really in those, in those rooms, you're not going to know this stuff. That's right. I just thought this was such a great interview because Glenn knows the questions to ask and, and Donald's been around the block. You know, he knows the answers to these things. Um, Glenn asked him, you know, what things still exist in recording contracts that have a bad reputation? I'm thinking of reserves for returns or controlled composition clauses or ways that labels would keep a little money for themselves at the expense of the artist. Do these things still exist? Wow. And Donald said, they do, but they're becoming much less relevant. Certainly the returns reserve, if the item is physical, uh, goods still apply. Although vinyl is surging, it's still less than 10% of the business. So it applies to that. And the same thing with the control composition clause. It, it doesn't really apply to digital. It only applies to physical product in any relatively recent deals. So it's become less relevant and easier for artists to get better terms. I thought that was really interesting. Well, then, and then Glenn came back and he said, what would you like to completely rid from contracts? And he says, the contracts have gotten reasonably artist friendly over time. He says, I mean, obviously, they're still going to want to take an edge in a corner. 
I will tell you that re-recording restrictions have gotten tougher in recent years for reasons you can probably figure out. And those used to be much broader than they are now. That uh. was also super interesting because both you and I have worked with artists that 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 do re-records. And, oh, uh, yeah. Well, and, and look of at course, what Taylor Swift's doing what Taylor right Swift now. has done. Yes. And yeah. I'm sure that has kind of uh, really oh. awoken a sleeping giant. Absolutely. And, and Glenn asks, what's a typical restriction? And uh, Donald said, they don't want you to duplicate your recordings like ever. And then they will limit the other types of recordings you can do. So it's gotten tougher as the labels get more concerned about artists re-recording their catalog. And I think it's, it falls back on what you just mentioned. And, you know, when we talked about Taylor Swift, there were re-records before. Um, we've seen this. I mean, Kiss yes. recorded some of their biggest hits for a Japanese release. And uh, Patsy Cline back in the day had done some re-records. It just wasn't a big deal like it was with this Taylor Swift thing. Yeah. And of course, the book covers AI, as as you would expect. And and Glenn says, how challenging is this new generation of AI technology? And, he's, and Donald says, we're not going to put the AI back into the bottle. It's here. <laughs> the real problem with AI, apart from the fact that artists may not like it, is that it can dilute the money that's paid out to real artists. If I got a thousand plays and there's 10,000 in a month, I'm going to get 10% of the money, right? The problem is that if part of those plays are AI and the streamer isn't paying anybody because there's no copyright in AR, in AI, and there's no ability to get paid for it, then they're taking a chunk of money that's not going out of the real artist. So the challenge is to make sure that they can, can't use AI to dilute what's going to the record companies and artists. And obviously the companies are all over this and I think will be successful if they aren't already. It's not public in making sure that doesn't happen. But that's a major concern coming out of AI that we need to be careful about. That's right. And then he kind of talks about the big elephant in the room, um, Glenn asks. Um, but there's also potential too. I can imagine estates using AI to bring to life deceased artists. And this is something that you and I have talked to a lot of people about. And Don Passman says, yes, of course, all of those things are possible. Interestingly, there's no copyright in AI, artificial intelligence. So if you use it to create something, it may be that anything you create, anybody else can use for free and you can't necessarily get paid for it. So I think AI has a place in helping artists and helping enhance materials and so forth. But the law gets a little tricky because you can only copyright what's created by a human. And that's pretty well settled. And so the part created by AI doesn't have a copyright. So you don't end up owning 100% of your material. And this is the part where I hear a lot of people um, sort of arguing about one side is what Don Passman just said. And then there's another argument where they're saying, but wait, if this is drawn from this body of work, let's say it's John Coltrane and you only draw from John Coltrane's catalog and you're training this you know, machine learning on that, wouldn't that still be part of his body of work, part of his copyright? Some, Donald's saying no. I've heard some people say, I, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and he also goes on to kind of talk about the sales of catalogs. And, uh, you know, he... He has an interesting concept, uh, interesting take on it. He, uh, Donald says, catalog sales are happening at every level. The ones who get the headlines are the most successful. 
He says, at almost every level, somebody is selling their catalogs. I'll give you my philosophy on it. He says, for most people, I think it's a mistake. And I try to talk them out of it. And I can give you the reasons if you're interested. There's a section of the book on this as well. And Glenn says, well, yeah, please do. And he says, historically, everybody who sold their catalog has regretted it. He said the Beatles catalog sold, uh, of course, back to, to, to uh, back in the day for to Michael Jackson for forty-seven million. He said it's probably worth a billion dollars today. There's people over the years who have sold their royalty streams, and with the changes in technology, they now make almost as much every year. It would have made them what they sold for, so for at least two or three years worth. And the other exercise is a pretty simple one: take the money that you get from the sale, deduct your expenses of selling, pay your taxes, and when you look at what's left over. Can you invest it? Can you get the same amount of money you were getting before? He says, and do you have the same upside potential your catalog has? He says, a lot of time the answer is no. And prices are definitely at a historic high. He says, I've never seen them this high before. But then, you know, and you and I have talked about this as well. He says, there are a couple of circumstances where he believes that it is okay to sell. Like if you're an older artist and your heirs don't know how to handle your catalog or will kill each other trying to, to, to manage it. He said in those cases, it probably makes a lot of sense. But generally speaking, he's not a big fan, even though he said he could make a lot of money himself off of, a, off of negotiating a sale of a catalog. So, you know, an interesting yeah. take on it. It is an interesting take because, you know, people are at different levels of their lives and their careers. Some of them are pretty financially set. Some of them are not. Um, Some of them are looking at estate planning to take care of their heirs, as he mentions here. Um, And some of them just desperately need the money, but you don't have to sell off your entire catalog. I've seen artists sell off portions of their catalog so they can live the uh, kind of life that they want. But look, it's a, it's a great book. It's one that I highly recommend, and we're just giving you excerpts from this interview by Glenn Peoples. You need to read the uh, full article. It's uh, There's a lot here. And another interview uh, of uh, Don Passman that I thought was really good was when he was on uh, Bob Lefset's uh, yes. podcast. Because then you have two people who are basically... Attorneys, attorneys talking to each other about things and they can ask questions that maybe a lot of people wouldn't think of. Um, but Glenn being such a music business expert, he certainly asked a lot of the right questions here he in did. this piece in billboard. He did. Absolutely. We'll have to buy him a drink the next time we see him for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a uh, great article. And again, I mean, you, if you don't have this book, you have to have this book, go get the book because it, I can't tell you how many times that I have pulled mine off the shelf, uh, you know, just e- whether whether an artist or friend or fellow musician is asking about stuff. And, you know, we we both learned a fair bit in the careers, careers that we had and have, but there's so much to, to know and so many things that get updated and changed that maybe I knew about it 10 years ago and it's a different yeah. story now. So. I don't know many people who know all of this stuff. No. Right? No. I certainly don't. And it's such a great reference. And again, just just so everybody knows, it's uh, it's by Donald Passman, and the book is called All You Need to Know About the Music Business, and this 11th edition comes out October 24th. Uh, it's a must-have. Must-have and must-read, and uh, yeah, a, an epic reference to have on your shelf. Yes, How sir. about the second story, Jay? This is from Media. Streaming is missing cultural moments, and superstars know it. Yeah, 
And this was written by our friend, Chris Thakra. Great mm-hmm. job, Chris. Uh, love the graphics. <laughs> For those of you, we'll, we'll give you some highlights from this piece. It's so good, but you need to check out the, uh, the graphic in here and uh, everything that he covers. So he kicks it off by saying that in the modern music industry, a near constant supply of music is expected to succeed on streaming platforms. You know, Drake is one of the best examples of this. Since 2015, he's released an album every year, in addition to two collaborative albums, adding up to 200 tracks. That's just since 2015. Um, That amounts to a new track on average every 16 days for more than eight years, not including any other non-album singles or collaborations. That's massive. (laughs) That's a ton of music. He goes on to say, whilst this velocity of output has built a huge audience, it's hard for fans to get excited about the norm and superstars know it. That is why when it comes to creating moments to engage and excite their biggest fans, superstars are going anywhere but streaming. That's interesting. The The subheadline here says super fans want more than streams. And boy, is that true. When we had Chris on the podcast, we talked about super fans mm-hmm. um, with him and Tatiana Sirisano. It's been a big subject in your morning coffee. It's, it's hot on everybody's mind. So super fans, or I'm sorry, superstars such as Drake, Taylor Swift, uh, SZA, you know, they're engaging their biggest fans outside of the music streaming platforms. Drake initially released 8 a.m. in Charlotte on his Instagram, enabling fans, collaborators, and other superstars to comment and engage. Taylor Swift released a tour film that has taken over $100 million in cinema ticket pre-sales. Finally, SZA tweeted, X'd about doing an intimate tour in the cities she's felt where the most devoted based on how engaged they were on her tour, i.e. not necessarily where her streaming dashboard said they were the most engaged. Yeah, it's, it's, he says streaming asks artists to release music, but asks very little of fans beyond follows and playlist ads. Superstar artists have super fan bases, and the engagement that super fans provide has been underutilized in the streaming era. Superstars are going elsewhere to create moments for their biggest fans, and streaming platforms might not ever be able to win them back. Yeah, and, and we talk about what do super fans do? Well, we know because we are super fans of certain artists. You know, we want to have those experiences. We want to have those great seats. We want to have the meet and greets. We want to have different types of merch. Um, there's so many ways to engage with an artist outside of just streaming. Absolutely. He says super fans want to be active, whether it's releasing music on Instagram, selling cinema tickets or performing live superstar artists get the most value out of super fans when they engage more deeply with them. Active engagement and the opportunity to connect with other fans are the foundations of formats that enable super fandom. And he says, however, in music streaming, there is not a lot to encourage fans to listen to music and consume it actively. Superstars do not expect to be background music. And when fan bases reach the scale of super fan bases, your fandom is established by how active you are as a fan. If music is too easily pushed in the background, superstars will go to places where their fans can be more than listeners. Or maybe one of these uh, digital service providers will 
change their business up a little bit to engage with the the super fan. He he ends this piece by talking about identity is fundamental to music. Uh, and it's so true. Out of all entertainment formats, music is the most fundamental building block of identity for consumers. And he doesn't say this in the piece, but you and I have had this conversation. You know, it's it's this brand. It's you're part of a tribe, you know, when, mm-hmm. whether you're part of uh, the BTS army or the Kiss army or you're a Jimmy Buffett parrot head or whatever it is, you're part of that community. And it's much larger than just streaming music. It's 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 a lifestyle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and as they as he goes on to say, out of all the entertainment formats, music is the most fundamental building block of identity for consumers. He says, for super fans, it simply makes more sense for music to live in a place and in a format where identity also resides. Moments that help form our identity do not happen in the background. They happen right in front of our face. He says, streaming is changing, but Spotify's potential new feature in their reported super premium tier still focused on improving the background experience with speculated new features that like higher quality audio and automated AI playlist generation until streaming service provides until streaming services I should say provide more ways for super fans to be active the superstars they follow will find other places to connect with them yeah I get yeah. it you know one you know? of the platforms I thought that did such a great job was Twitch Um, you know, where you can, it's so easy to tip and it's so easy to really engage with artists and it's not for everyone. Um, but there's some amazing things going on over there. I think that we're just in this infancy stage now of where do we go from here? Um, okay. We've got streaming services and they've got roughly the same hundred million or so songs and they're, you know, they're a little bit different, but a friend of mine showed me a new release email from all of the major DSPs uh, one week, and they were almost identical in the new releases that they were featuring. So they're not really differentiating themselves. It's really more of, you know, this utility. And one of the things that we talked about, if you haven't listened to the episode of your Morning Coffee podcast with uh, Chris Thakra, who wrote this article, and Tatiana Sirisano, and your... Uh, adorable hosts. It really digs into that super fan because we all sort of feel like this is a missed opportunity so far mm-hmm. in the music industry. Well, and I even find myself in the age of streaming being a much less active listener. It's it's so easy to put on music and to put on a playlist and just do other stuff. And that's historically not the way I listened to music at all. I was a very active music listener. And I find myself now kind of having to force myself to sit down and be an active listener. And yeah, I, and I think that is kind of, well, you know, the, the, certainly the downside of streaming is that yeah. it's, it's so easy. And, and, you know, when we used to, we, we always had a finite budget uh, for music. And so I think there was an appreciation, a greater appreciation to 100% to spend time with it because that was your hard earned cash. And, yeah. you know, and, and I only it's had a little money too for easy. Th- right it's a little now. too easy now. That's right. That's right. And there's so much music, so much music out there. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is interesting to see how behaviors have changed. And even with us, you know, who started listening to music well before the era of streaming. Yeah. And remember last week we talked about Spotify's new day list, Mm -hmm. um, which is a series of playlists that sort of follow you around throughout the day for different 
you know, different activities, different things that are going on, different times of day, you know, one for the morning, you know, that sort of thing. And as I was exploring that, um, I had a friend of mine sending me his um, to sort of compare. And I really sort of fell into it that day of being very passive, very lean back, letting it go, seeing what happens. And that's not typically the way that I listen to music. I like to create my own playlist. I like to go listen to my own albums and listen and rediscover one of the, you know, and I think it was Will Page that mentioned this to us. You know, this rediscovery is key to the music industry and doesn't get um, a lot of attention. And that is, you may be a U2 fan, but maybe you haven't listened to them for a while, but you saw that they did this concert at the Sphere and then you went and listened to, you know, Octung Baby or something and went, wow, I haven't heard this for a while. That rediscovery. And remember, 75% of this business right now is catalog. Yep. Now we can argue about what's deep catalog and what's real catalog and all of that, but it's not just the hits coming at you. But I think to wrap this all up, it's really a different way of listening to music. And I'm falling into it as much as anyone Mm -hmm. um, to that passive, just let somebody else feed it to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting to see how how your behavior changes when music is a utility. You know, it's not, it's not about access, not ownership to a lot of these people, but I still, I still love the ownership. I still like, but you know, I was telling you that I replaced a lot of my favorite albums on vinyl and it was just so much fun to try to find them and then play them with a cleaner version. And man, when you play a vinyl album, you got to be present. You got to be paying attention because you're gonna have to flip that side. And it's a different listening experience and I won't get into the quality and I'm not an audiophile. So music, I don't care if it's on an AM radio, I'll listen to a, a great song, but I do think that there's such a big difference between how people stream music and then listen to a CD or vinyl. Yeah. 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 For sure. Hey, let's get on to our last story, Jay. It's from billboard, uh, from points to publishing. Here's how and how much, Producers get paid now, and this is fascinating as well. Again, looking kind of behind the curtain and and seeing how some of these deals are now structured. Again, in a streaming era, when you know historically speaking, uh, you know it was a different world when when it was physical product and how publisher yeah. or excuse me how producers got paid. And well, uh, a yeah, good article. Uh, it is. It's by Kristen Robinson over at Billboard, and. I learned a lot from this because I really don't know that much about how producers deals are arranged. I've met some producers and then they seem to live well, but I don't know, you know, what percentage of the recording they get, if any, if it's just a fee, if it's, if it varies. And that's why when I saw this headline, I couldn't wait to read it because this is an area that's sort of a mystery to a lot of people. The, The sub headline is with greater distinctions for payment, By genre and widely varying upfront fees, there are greater possibilities to earn publishing income than ever. Yes. But, you know, you and I were talking about a couple of our friends before we hit record. Uh, And I know so many producers and engineers whose and and artists as well, whose uh, income just flatlined when we made the transition to streaming. So I I find it interesting kind of how this... uh, 
this kind of gets started. And so, you know, here we are today now, well into the publish in, into, I'm sorry, into the streaming era. And uh, as uh, as this thing starts, Quincy Jones said it best, explains Nile Rogers, a producer of record is like the director of a film. From the first production credits on tracks like Luther Vandross, Sister Sledge, and Diana Ross to his most recent work with Beyonce, uh, Daft Punk, and Coldplay, Rogers is one of the rare producers who bridges the gap between the classic understanding of a record producer and today's digital music maker. Um, ah. He sa- uh, says in the 20th century, Rogers and his contemporaries record Recorded songs to lumbering rolls of tape, bringing the visions of artists and songwriters to life with their ornamentation, arrangement, and technical skills. While that is still a trade for some producers, the trade has changed dramatically. Around the turn of the millennium, increasingly powerful DIY recording tools and the piracy-inflicted bust of the music business drove recording from fancy studios and into musicians' homes. Shifts that democratized who could be viewed as a producer and blurred the lines between the process of songwriting and recording. How producers are compensated has also evolved with greater distinctions for payment by genre, widely varying upfront fees, and greater possibilities to earn publishing income than ever. But, you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. When you look at just credits on albums, it is amazing how things have changed in terms of you have these producers that are also songwriters that are also brought in because they oh, specialize yeah. in a certain genre or a certain style and it's and and we have multiple songwriters multiple people taking specialties whether they're beat producers or whether they're good on hooks or on choruses or on you know a variety of things it is so different now how music is made and it looks like things are changing as well in the back end and how people are getting paid yeah, we've been talking about songwriters. I think the last quote I heard was there's an average of nearly five co-writers on the songs yeah. that are on the Hot 100 right now, <clears throat> you know. And when you talk about producers, um, those fees are sort of a mystery and they, you just alluded to it. So let's talk about producer fees. The most reliable form of income for producers uh, a sum owed for their work before the song comes out. Fees tend to start around $15,000 to do a track for a major label affiliate pop or R&B hip hop artist. A superstar level producer might charge up to $75,000 or higher, but $30,000 to $40,000 is considered a good range for one who is well-established and working with a major label act. When producers work across an entire album of songs, it's common to reduce the per track rates. That makes sense, right? It might be $30,000 for the first three songs, $20,000 for the second two, and $10,000 for the last song, says Lucas Kelly, founder of product management firm Milk and Honey. Yeah, he says these for, these fees are paid half up front and half upon the delivery of a record that the label deems commercially satisfactory. While that first half is a producer's to keep, the second is an advance against master royalties earned from the song. In today's streaming economy, however, many tracks don't recoup their fees. Independent artists and or those with little to no recording budget sometimes get more creative in paying producers what they are owed. 
instead of a fee. A lot of producers are getting 50% of the master monies, either in perpetuity or until the artist makes the producer's fee back, says Audrey wow. Benoit. Can't pronounce that last name. Sorry, sorry, Audrey. <laughs> Partner at uh, uh, Myman Greenspan. Uh, producers can also receive a fee under the aforementioned $15,000 for their work. That's interesting and, and in my mind, a little dangerous, you know, when you're yes. giving away a piece of the master, because especially when you see a word like perpetuity. So let's talk about <laughs> yes. um, points. We all hear about, oh, well, they've got two points or they got five points. Uh, points or the percentage of master royalties producers receive for their work. Earning from two to five percentage points of a record is common today starting at two points for a newcomer and four to five for a well-established in-demand producer. This amount is subtracted from the act's percentage share of the recording. Labels aren't expected to cede any of their share to compensate a producer. Which means it's coming out of the artist's side. Yeah. In rare cases, a superstar talent may command six to eight points. Uh, Nile Rogers and his manager, Hypnosis founder and CEO Merc Mercuriatus, confirmed that on average, Rogers earns six points, but every song is a unique negotiation. As Keller explains, things can get more complicated when two producers are involved. Let's say two sizable producers want four points each. Well, they won't likely get to take all eight to get to take eight altogether. So, in that scenario, we try to split six points down the middle. Yeah, this is so, so interesting. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm learning so much from this piece. I'm going to print this one out and just save it. The, the next part is just publishing. Uh, because modern musicians often write and record as they go, the line between songwriter and producer is blurrier than ever. And you alluded to that a moment ago. Many creatives that are now primarily classified as producers are also part of the songwriting process. And I mean, so with these multi-hyphenates, they, they earn publishing in addition to fees in points. Yeah. He said back in the day when people talked about what a songwriter did, it was the guy who wrote melody, lyrics, and chords. Today, if you come up with the beat, like many producers do, you can also be credited as a songwriter. This is what Merc Mercurius was saying. This is especially true in hip-hop. Michael Sulkin, a top music attorney who has worked in the business since the 70s, credits the genre's emergence as a big part of redefining what a producer does. Uh, uh, Timmy Hale, senior director of publishing at Big Machine's LA office, says, in hip-hop, publishing is sometimes split down the middle, 50% for the top line, 50% for the track and then in parentheses it says in pop and other genres there isn't a standard amount of publishing a producer songwriter can expect that share of the composition is negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis so very very interesting and then the last uh, part of this article it talks about what they call extra earnings some producers can pocket extra income through neighboring rights performance royalties earned on the master side of income in many countries outside of the united states kind of ends with something that i've also was thinking about as i was reading the article it says nowadays veteran hit makers like dr luke and max martin may also sign proteges to production deals or joint ventures with publishers to earn additional income, allowing them to, as uh, Keller puts it, amass a huge catalog with real enterprise value. The pr younger producers, in exchange for part of their monies, in turn get introductions to people uh, in the network, uh, special opportunities with artists. So, you know, there's a, a, a bunch of ways to kind of find money in this in this area, but it's changed so dramatically. And it's, again, as, as the production of an album, 
problem has changed so dramatically. So have sure. how the monies are paid out and how you get paid. Well, when we grew up, let's say it was George Martin producing the Beatles. It was such a different world yeah. because now the producers are coming in with beats and coming in with uh, some songwriting assistance and other things. It's it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. A lot more complicated. And and again, the expectation oftentimes now is that the producer will contribute to songwriting, to the songwriting side of things. So way different world and way different, um, you know, how monies are, are distributed in that process. But I was, as, as we're reading those numbers, you know, how much they're getting up front, I'm like, how does anybody ever get recouped in, in the age of streaming? It, I don't... It just seems like that's a lot of money going out at a time when it takes a long time to recoup that. You have to be a superstar yeah. artist. You're not going to do this as a developing artist. I'll tell you that. No, no, no. Exactly right. Well, listen, on that note, Jay, we got to wrap up the show. We want to thank everyone for listening to episode 166. And of course, we want to thank the wonderful folks that bring us to the party every week. Our sponsors, Banzugo, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. Big thanks. And uh, Jay, you have a fabulous week, and we're going to say that to our listeners as well. And we'll be back next time. And thanks for joining us on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.